When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is, this is Kabira. He was a weaver, a very mouthy weaver. And he bugged a lot of people in India, and he's still bugging them. And they love him all over India. They recite him, sing him. Friend, hope for the guest while you're alive. Jump into experience while you're alive. Think and think while you're alive. What you call salvation belongs to the time before death. If you don't break your ropes while you're alive, do you think that ghosts will do it after? That's a good question. The idea that the soul will join with the ecstatic just because the body's rotten, that is all fantasy. Someone should tell that to the Pope. <laughs> the idea that the soul will join with the ecstatic just because the body's rotten, that is all fantasy. What is found now is found then. And if you find nothing now, you will simply end up with an apartment in the city of death. I was going with a young poet through Chicago, and he recited differently. He said, if you make love with the divine now, no, he said, if you, if you find nothing now, you'll simply end up with a suite in the Ramada Inn of Death. <laughs> if you make love with the divine now, if you make love with the divine now, in the next life, you will have the face of satisfied desire. If you make love with the divine now, in the next life, you'll have the face of satisfied desire. So plunge into the truth. Find out who the teacher is. Believe in the great sound. Believe in the great sound. Kabir says this, when the guest is being searched for, it's the intensity of the longing for the guest that does all the work. When the guest is being searched for, it's the intensity of the longing for the guest that does all the work. Then he says, look at me, and you will see a slave of that intensity.
Medicine Path Podcast is an ongoing exploration into the intersections of spirituality, depth psychology, and psychedelics. The Medicine Path is a wholly independent and listener-supported project, so please consider becoming a supporter at patreon.com forward slash medicine path, or by subscribing and leaving a review on iTunes. You can find out more information at medicinepathpodcast.com. Now, here's your host, Brian James. Welcome to the Medicine Path Podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. This is the second in a series of podcasts that pays tribute to poet, activist, and author Robert Bly, who died a few weeks ago. And that was his voice you heard at the beginning of the podcast, reading the 15th century Indian poet Kabir, and accompanied by live musicians. I think that little excerpt gives you a good feeling for Robert's spontaneity and humor, the qualities that he helped awaken and nurture in today's guest. So in this episode, I speak with storyteller and mentor Michael Mead, who spent many years working side-by-side with Robert as part of the mythopoetic men's movement. Michael was a central figure in that scene, bringing his deep knowledge of myth, story, and initiation to the gatherings. And in our conversation, Michael shares what it was like to work so closely with Robert, the ways in which they learned from each other, and how they ended up parting ways. I'm so grateful to Michael for sharing these personal stories and reflections, because they offer some great insights for anyone involved in any kind of mentorship, leadership, or men's work. So please, pull a chair up to the fire, lean in, and listen as Michael Mead pays tribute to his old friend, mentor and colleague, Robert Bly, on The Medicine Path. So I'm here with Michael Mead. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time to do this podcast and pay tribute to Robert Bly, who passed a couple weeks ago. I know that you knew him really well. And uh, I guess my intention for doing this little series is to help people understand the man behind the the you know staggering body of work that he left us mm, mm. so really appreciate it yeah yeah thank you yeah it's important he was a bigger than life figure and like you said amazing amount of work and influence that he had in people's lives but also in the culture mm-hmm. and it's only proper to honor someone when they pass it's it's part of hmm it's part of respect and part which and part of uh realizing how other people can affect our lives so much which certainly was the case with Robert and myself yeah yeah he's been kind of a constant voice for me over the past 25 plus years and you know every time i go back to his work and listen to lectures or some of those presentations you guys did at the men's conferences i'm always finding something new something inspiring something just touches my heart about the way he seemingly was or at least the way he came across in those presentations just uh so much like humility and authenticity and yet boldness and 
uh, humor. I mean, I just think of him as like kind of a full spectrum guy. <laughs> yeah, he had a great sense of humor. He he had uh, he had a courage, uh, a courage to try things and and to do things. I mean, I couldn't tell you how many times we arrived at some place. And we had no plan whatsoever. And 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 he would just be like, that's fine. Okay, either you do a poem or I'll do a poem and off we go. And um, we used to call it, uh, he used to call it, riding the rapids. Mm. That we would get going and then we were in the rapids, just moving with the water and finding ways to turn. And then he had that great ability to um, awaken emotion in any kind of audience. And that was part of the water of the rapids was the stirring of emotions. And uh, yeah, it was brilliant. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that really stands out for me about him is how off the cuff he was, even with, you know, really big audiences uh, after Iron John came out and he got really kind of famous, he still maintained that off the cuff attitude, which shows to me that he had a great amount of confidence in himself and you know, all his years of study and everything, like the work done, but also uh, kind of honoring or appreciating spontaneity and uh, seeing what could arise in the moment and thinking that's more special than any agenda I might have coming in, you know? He had a real connection to and um, trust in the immediacy and spontaneity of the soul. It was really a soulful more than a spiritual spontaneity. They're both mixed in there, but it was really soulful. Uh, and that's what I think you see, at, you feel and see as authentic. Uh, because when things are spiritually spontaneous, they often lead to fixed ideas or codification. And this was way more, way closer to nature and the animal world. And his poetry has leaps in it, you know, spontaneous leaps in it. And, and that was really natural to him. And it was uh, eye-opening and freeing for me hmm. to, to actually see, oh, you could do this. And it doesn't matter the circumstances you're in. And I could, can't say that I could describe what that meant for him. Exactly. But for me, it meant there's another entity present here. Yeah. It's not that we have to come in and have it all right. We have to show up in some emotionally present way. We have to be authentic. Um, and if we can, and then something else is trying to happen anyway. And so it's closer to what you would find uh, in, in indigenous people. In, in, in African people or Native American, where people realize there are these other presences that are part of every coming together and that there are things trying to enter the room, if it's in a room, uh, that are not coming directly from us. Yeah. yeah. He had the courage of that. Yeah. It reminds me of, uh, I think it was last time we talked, we were talking a lot about ritual and what makes up a ritual, what elements are present. And it reminds me a lot of that, that there is these other elements, the third element or more elements that want to come in. And maybe um, 
an emphasis on professionalism or preparation just gets in the way of that, that magic that can happen. Well, yeah, and, and also the emotions. Robert was very, uh, the, his sense of the soul was the emotional soul. And so his, he seemed to assume that within 15 minutes, we're going to be in the emotional waters of some kind. It might be not the waters, but the fires of conflict. We're, we're going to be in something, and we're going to know that we're present, and we're going to remember it afterwards because the emotions are going to flow. And, and people are going to feel more embodied and more present on the occasion. He, he had that, um, a certified sense of that, which was a blessing to me because it was an eye-opener and then it became a blessing that, yeah, you can count on that. And, and um, that there is a requirement from the point of view of uh, poetics and even mythopoetics, there is a requirement to bring emotional presence and embodied presence, um, or you're not actually showing up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I talked to uh, Martin Shaw a couple days ago about Robert, and uh, something that came up when we were talking was uh, that, you know, him in particular, but people like him who have that kind of confidence and boldness to be in the moment. Uh, gives me permission. Um, And, you know, when I was talking about Robert, it was like, he's one of the first older men who gave me permission to be beautiful. Um, But also all these other things too, to be like a a rascal and to be lamenting. I mean, he could cry out in the middle of telling a story or a poem, like nobody I'd ever heard. It just, you know, the emotion would just reverberate through me, you know? Um, Yeah. What do you think about that? Like how he, did you feel like he gave you permission to be something? No, it's a really good thought. Yes, absolutely. He, he even gave me permission to be myself. Right. Yeah. Uh, I can remember various situations we would be in because we went to all kinds of places. um, And I would, learning my own way and 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 I would be doing something and and someone would uh take issue with it for whatever reason and and Robert would just say really loudly no that's Michael and that's what he does or or you know and he was like clearing a path for me in a certain way and 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 I heard that as um not simply as protection but really as permission but also a little bit as instruction, be mm-hmm. yourself who you are. Um, and I want to echo what you said. He had a, not just an interest in, but an alliance with the trickster. And so he loved the trickster stuff. Um, and of course, I have to just tell the truth about that. Uh, the trickster stuff always has a shadow quality to it. So we would get into trouble also. And, uh, and that mostly was fine with him. It was like, that's part of the adventure. Uh, so yeah. it was great. It was great. And yeah, nothing wrong with a little trouble now and again. No, no. And I used to see Robert as almost like a Viking. He had that Norwegian Viking energy. And, and it was as if, to me, it was as if we would come upon, you know, the, the front piece of a forest 
And, and I'd be trying to figure out, well, where do, where's the path? Where do we go in? And he would say, let's go. And he would just make a trail into the forest. And uh, that's what it felt like. And, and then all of a sudden we'd be in the forest. And now, you know, now we figure out what we do once we're in there. Mm. And so I'd never seen anyone do that before. I'd never seen anyone go that far. Um, and I, I also began to realize that each moment could be the moment that cracks open and breaks open. I think that's what you, you were mentioning when you hear cry out in a story. Uh, and so the sense was that this moment or the next moment could be the moment where everything cracks open. And so that was an interesting practice uh, because I want to underscore what you said. We'd go into places where there was a very big audience and lots of expectation. And part of what I had to learn is we'd be we wouldn't have a very good plan or we made a plan. And then on the way to the stage, Robert would turn to me and say, hey, why don't you tell that other story? And all of a sudden, we're, it's too late to discuss it. And all of a sudden, we're on stage. And, uh, and I have to do something. I thought we had agreed that he was going to start with something. And then not only do I have to start, but I have to start with the story I hadn't even thought about. And, uh, and it was too late to work it out. And so pretty much I would have to do it. And it was like an education in spontaneity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And kind of uh, letting go of the ego and, and its plans and all of that stuff too, right? Like when you said um, there, there's that opportunity for something to break through yeah. or to break out, you're also at that moment risking everything breaking down and, yeah. and just totally yeah. falling apart, right? Yeah. Yeah. You got to be okay with that and know how to recover. <laughs> You're reminding me uh, of something. Um, so Robert was also um, what at the time was called confessional. So he would say about how he feels or tell a story about his father turning away from him or whatever it was going to be. And it would be revelatory for a clearly powerful man to talk in this personally revealing way. Um, and so I was really compelled by that, but I didn't intend to follow it. That was not, uh, I wasn't as inclined that way. Um, but so what would happen, I remember one time we we're going on stage, large audience, uh, mostly interested in Robert Bly and Iron John or whatever it is. And we sit down and everybody sits down and he says, uh, Michael, why don't you tell everybody what it was like to be in prison when you refused to fight in the Vietnam War? Thanks, Robert. <laughs> you know, yeah. and I'm like, what do, I, what do I say? And for him, he had an easier way to enter that kind of personal stuff than I did. But I wasn't going to not do it. So then the next thing contrary to any expectation I have, I'm telling and feeling my way back into military prison. Um, and that's how we're launching that day. And over time, that became like a real teaching for me, a real learning that, yeah, there's a value to do that. And just to take it one other step, because, you know, we were exploring this, what we called men's work at the time. And uh, there was no rules. There was no map. 
But the one thing that became evident for us, and Robert was leading the way, was we had to be genuine. Mm-hmm. Or, or it's like every other thing in the culture. And so those retreats, those especially those long early retreats, depended on um, being honest and coming from a deep personal space. And the idea was if we're expecting those who show up to become open and vulnerable and honest, we have to model that right at the beginning. And, and so that was an amazing thing to learn. Yeah. You had to show that you had skin in the game too. And again, coming back to permission. So if you guys at the, on the stage are opening up and sharing honestly and with vulnerability, it's going to inspire that in the other guys that it's yeah. okay. Because at that time, there wasn't a whole lot of modeling of that in, you know, exactly. in the men, men's world, right? Exactly. That was really unusual. And and then a second component came in, which was interesting too. Uh, I remember the the first retreat we actually did. Robert had done one smaller group retreat, and then he invited me. He was going to do another one. He said, "Would you come and do it?" There was no description of what it was. I had no idea what I was getting into, but it wound up being the first full fledged men's retreat kind of thing. Um, And it was clear that we had to start out by some personal revelation and and some vulnerable way of being present, or else it was going to be another hierarchical, predictable kind of thing. Um, So we did that. And then it wasn't that long before something, Robert said something, and I didn't agree with it. And so I'm sitting next to him. And it's just the two of us and a whole room full of people. And and I'm new at this. And he's older than I am and way more experienced and all. But it's bothering me that this thing that's being said, I don't feel is the best thing to say if we're going to be learning how to work together. And and, 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 and so finally, I can't help it. And I say, I just want to say, I, I don't agree with that. And here's why. And then Robert's was fierce. You know, it's not as if he would go, oh, okay, you're right. No, he goes, well, here's why I'm saying it. And I'd say, yeah, but here's why I'm saying, and the next thing we're having an argument in front of everybody. <laughs> and, uh, and I, I, inside, I can't tell if this is the right thing or wrong thing to do, but what it turned out to be, and it became very evident. It was, it was also unusual to see two men argue without it becoming a fight or uh, a separation. Yeah. And we learned how to argue in public. Uh, because we did have different points of view and also because he was like a Viking and I came from the Irish who got invaded by the Vikings. There was a whole uh, strange inner mythology we were working on. Uh, and that was a great thing to to actually learn how to do that. And And the feedback from so many men was, wow, I didn't know that you could do that. I thought it had to lead to uh, revenge and fighting and or retreating and sulking or, you know. Not, exactly, exactly. Something like that. Yeah. And uh, so we would get into it and then resolve it or drop it and, and go on. And that and I remember there were psychologists and, thera- and therapists and psychiatrists that would come to the events and they would mention, they would say, God, that's a great modeling thing to see that that's possible, that that's part of it. And the reason that it could work 
was um, what we were aiming at was bigger than that. That there, there was always this sense of something beyond us is trying to show up. And the poems and the honest speech and the music and whatever we did was to open the doors for something that we couldn't identify, but we thought was trying to be present, which would become the healing and unifying energy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I so miss that. You know, I listened to those old recordings uh, from the men's conferences and hear you and Robert together, um, you know, maybe at some points you might be presenting and it sounds like he's in the audience and he'll just be shouting out stuff like challenging or, Hey, say that again, or, and here you guys going back and forth. And then maybe a guy in the audience says something that's a little provocative or challenging. Um, I don't see a lot of that out in the world today. Like it seems like there's so much emphasis on having like a slick presentation. It's usually one person up on stage and they're the authority and everybody's just listening uh, maybe they'll tentative, tentatively ask some questions at the end or something, but that kind of uh, aliveness and spiritedness and with all that going on, the conflict and the praise and everything, it's just so unique. Yeah, that was the um, crucible. We were working with a crucible. And um, I, I distinctly remember how we had to form that. We had to learn what was trying to happen. And and I'd never seen it before, nor had Robert, but uh, you could you could sense things that would be meaningful that had to happen. And there and there had to be a sense that um, everything is open, everything is possible, except we ask at the beginning. So these were retreats. So then you know that's what we call the men's work or the soul work. And then later it became more public and and that wasn't what was happening. But in the retreats, which were experimental and exploratory, um, we would just ask, uh, could there be no physical violence? <laughs> that was the only rule. That was the only rule. Things might get job. wild, but no, I, no physical violence. I would just ask, could everybody agree that there's no physical violence? Oh. And because that's, it was part of the men's work was realizing that how often men get to violence. Look at the culture now. And so we wanted to make clear that where there's going to be intensity, but we're not going there. And actually, the other thing uh, we came up with, which was kind of a rule, which was, please don't leave the room. Mm. Even if you're terrified or overwhelmed, try to stay in the room because uh, we were seeing it as a crucible. Yeah. Uh, and, And something was going to get cooked in there. It was um, it was like a psychic sweat lodge. Yeah, wow. that, that was another way to describe it. And so all the pain had to be in there, and all the uh, confusion had to be in there. And then we're using primarily poetry, music, and some ritual uh, to get to solutions that are that are deeper than anybody expected. Mm. Um, and so that capacity to not have a plan, which at times had a downside to it, also had the quality of uh, of real spontaneous occurrences and really dramatic presence. Everyone was more present than 
you could be in most places. Yeah. And, and that was, you know, Roberts initiated that. Hmm. Kind of amazing. I mean, you hear about, you know, the time before that, 60s and 70s, it sounded like he spent a lot of time on his own in his cabin, writing poetry, reading Jung and Marie-Louise von Franz, and, but very solitary kind of existence. And then all of a sudden, it seems from, you know, this perspective later, boom, here's this guy commanding the stage and working with other people like a seasoned psychotherapist or something. Well, I think that part of it, that's part of him and the other part of him have been there all along also. I mean, I did, didn't know him during the more quiet years. But uh, remember, he was a co-founder of Poets Against the War during the Vietnam era. And so he was in protests and, and, and creating events for poets to, to express, uh, you know, opposition to the war. Um, and he had a really strong extroverted side that I'm sure was there during those uh, more quiet periods as well. I, I never saw him where he lost that extroverted uh, energy. Mm. Um, another quality that he had that was like a blessing too was inviting people. He would invite people. It's an unusual thing to do it that broadly and that generously. I mean, that's how I got involved. He invited me, you know, right after we met, almost immediately invited me to come and do something. And um, and then over time, I just watched him keep inviting all kinds of people in. Um, and that was part of his extroverted side, was that we're going to involve and engage people. Uh, I've never seen, and I still have never seen anybody be as uh, as bold about that either. Well, it's so generous, right? Yeah. Because um, these days you get teachers of a certain level, you know, they're kind of on the world stage at this point. You know, maybe they do a, a, a dialogue with a colleague or something like that on stage. But to see him bring up younger people uh, who maybe filled some kind of niche that he couldn't fill, like you with your storytelling and Maladoma Somme with his ritual and Martin Practel, the same kind of thing, like, he would find people who could fill a niche for what he was trying to do. And he had no problem with bringing them up, giving them a platform and saying, okay, you're on stage, run with it, do your thing. So generous. Yeah, I agree. I agree. It was a wild generosity. I mean, he and, started, and, he started people's careers and people, oh, are, yeah. you know. Oh yeah. Yeah. And just to say it was wild and generous and it often didn't work. <laughs> and that was part of it too, which was back to the trickster thing. That that would be then suddenly we would become more of a trickster occasion. Oh, we we thought the guy was a great singer, it would turn out not to be. And 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 that was fine. That was fine. There was an almost theatrical quality to it that was natural uh, to Robert. It was interesting because you can think of him as that introverted poet, but then there was this uh, more theatrical extroverted. Uh, and I agree. I think generous is a good word for that. Yeah. Mm. He was generous with that in, invitational and blessing energy. Mm. Well, you mentioned, uh, you know, the first time that you worked with him at the conference, he invited you. But how did you actually meet him? Do you remember that first meeting? I, I do. Well, it actually started with a, a letter. If you can imagine a handwritten letter, it's hard to imagine nowadays. So this is a long time ago, 
And um, Robert had been interviewed by East West Magazine, I think, which was a, a thing at the time, it was an alternative magazine. And he was talking about myth and poetry and stuff like that. And he mentioned in the interview that um, uh, a scene from an Irish myth that, that he found so compelling. Uh, I remember it's about Emer, the the woman with the breast full of milk kind of thing, and uh, which he had great <laughs> interest in, which could be the Minnesota farm kid. I don't know, but anyway, uh, and and that uh, uh, she pronounces a riddle that she's not going to marry anyone unless they can solve the riddle. And then he says, he said, so it's this great thing as if, you know, and he's interpreting it, it, which was what was interesting to me about the interview, because I'm interested in myth and he's interpreting the myth. And he's saying, you know, and that's like nowadays, you know, it's a riddle when a man and a woman get together. And, and, then, and then he ends it by saying, of course, in the Irish story, they never give the answer to the riddle. And that's kind of confusing. But anyway, and so I thought, oh, I should write him a letter because he doesn't know how the Irish stories work. They're in cycles. And so the answer to the riddle in one story is in another story. Oh. And you have to know the cycle to get the full ed education that's being provided. And so I thought, well, I write him a letter and actually, uh, and someone I knew actually knew his address. And so I write him this handwritten letter and I say, and by the way, um, uh, I work with an Irish band, a good Irish band, and I weave in the ancient, most ancient poetry of Ireland and some stories with this Irish band in case, you know, you're ever interested in that kind of thing. I just send it off. And within like seven days, I get a letter back, handwritten, Robert Bly. He's saying, thanks for that, you know, information about the riddles. He said, um, uh, can you and this Irish band come to a conference? <laughs> So, uh, so we wind up going to this sight, sight unseen, unheard. Well, give this guy a chance. Whatever. Well, they're doing. A, I'm living in in Seattle, and they're doing a conference in the Northwest. And so, within a very short period of time, I have to convince the band to go. What do you mean conference? What what's it about? A poetry and what? What is it? New age stuff. So anyway, and then it turns out you have to take. Uh, a little boat out to this island where the conference is and and the boat is uh moved by a, a rope mm -hmm. so you pull the rope and you pull the boat over and so there we are the irish band and 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 all the instruments and everything in this little boat and we're pulling the rope and 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 here's this this big man with shock of of white hair waiting on the other end and so literally i get pulled out of the boat by robert's hand and that's how we meet Mm. Uh, on the on the edge of this island with the boat full of instruments and Irish musicians and everything and actually and so we did an Irish we did a show that night of the music and the ancient Irish poetry and then Robert and I sat up all night talking the mm. whole night and um, and so then from there it was just like he just kept inviting me to things. Mm. I remember um, first time I met someone who played a pivotal role in my life as uh, kind of an initiator and elder, um, you know, that I apprenticed with for a while. But I remember the first time I met him, there was a feeling of immediate recognition in me. Like I immediately felt comfortable with him. I felt like I had already know him, known him for a long time. And it's not like someone I read a bunch of their books and watched videos and, and had this idea that I knew them. It was like really just kind of immediate. It was like, doof. 
okay, I don't know. Our souls or karma is tied up in some way. We're going to be spending some time together. I don't know what's going to happen, but I mean, was there anything like that? Did you just have a sense that your destiny was linked with this guy? Well, yes, in two ways. So there was that occasion because that night it was like, Robert was a masterful teacher and knower of poetry. He really knew the field of poetry. I mean, the magazine that he had in the 50s, 60s, and 70s was profound, Mm -hmm. introducing Neruda and Machado and all kinds of Kabir, all kinds of poets to the American audiences. But he actually studied it. He knew all those uh, poems, and he knew knew a lot about that world, which um, was called the Bardic world. It's the world of the Bard. And so we talked about that that night. And I didn't know that he had all that background i just kind of met him and um and so that was the the part that seemed kind of destined or seemed to have some fate in it um that i would be interested in in poetry and mythology and robert would be so knowledgeable about that and also very interested in mythology uh and psychology and then there was another thing that was fateful in a way so um so then the next time I saw him was he, he was doing a presentation in Seattle. And so I went and then uh, afterwards I went up uh, to talk to him and he recognized me right away. There's a lot of, you know, line of people and all that kind of thing. Uh, and then um, he said, and he said to me like quietly, um, I feel like I'm in danger or something. Hmm. And, and I said, what, what do you mean? And he said, I think something's wrong. And I had been standing there when the person before me said something invasive to him. And, and I heard it. You know, people will do that. I, after that, I had a lot of that experience myself. And really what's going on, you're coming off stage and in that kind of work, you're coming off completely vulnerable. You're wide open. Mm-hmm. And, and, and some people will respond to that in a loving way. And other people will, will take, make a move. And so I just said to him, well, that last person you talked to was trying to invade you and you're too vulnerable coming off stage to defend yourself. And he said, tell me why. And I said, oh, because in order to open up like that and allow the spirit to come in and emotions and the soul, you're wide open, you're defenseless. Um, and I said, so he said, what do I do? And I said, well, you, you really should get some moves. Uh, sometimes when people bow on stage, what they're doing is collecting themselves and becoming a regular person again. Mm. I said, you might want to, and, and he said, and and right then he said, you have to, you have to be with me. And so that was a fateful thing too, that growing up in New York and some of the experiences that I had Mm. made me more alert to what's happened, uh, what's happening when someone is invasive or something. And Robert didn't have that. Right, that kind of uh, picking up on psychic energy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So that became a way that we were really connected, and we had lots of conversations about that. How did that work? And 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 you know, which morphed into conversations about psychology, which we also had a lot of. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it kind of makes sense. You growing up on the streets, him growing up on the farm. Yeah. Um, you know, that's part of your survival instinct, I'm sure. I, I love this, though, that you, you got to get some moves. <laughs> so do, do you know, like, kind of what moves he came up with? Like, maybe tips for us, too. Like, uh, you know, I want to know what some moves are. 
Well, my sense of it is uh, you need a persona that protects you as well as a persona that can loosen up and, and allow you to be vulnerable and open uh, and, and open in terms of emotion, but also open in terms of spiritual entities and elements. And so um, I think at the time I might have mentioned uh, something like, you know, just just people that he would be aware of. And, I, and I'd say, notice they have a, a persona that's more solid than just being open. Um, and it's not false. It's like a, a style. And um, so I'm trying to remember if we ever talked about it, how we talked about it, but it was just became a thing. Mm. And so we would we'd be doing something for years, just sitting together and then backstage or after the event, go over what had happened, you know, and, and um, what it means, like if there's a whole audience clapping and so on. Uh, the thing about bowing, I, I figured that out, that one of the reasons to bow so you have, if you, if you have a large audience and they're activated, the energy they're sending is genuine energy. It can wipe you out. Think of all the rock and roll bands that go and destroy a hotel room. It's because of all this energy that's beyond uh, comprehension and beyond containment. And so, um, so one of the tricks is like it, as if you were going into the water and a big wave is coming. Uh, you don't stand there and get hit by it. You go down and let it go over you. And so that was my metaphor, is is sometimes you're bowing just to let everything go by. Yeah, you got to duck that wave of energy. Yeah, you're not psychically destroyed afterwards. Yeah, or uh, filled up with all that archetypal energy that turns into a complete maniac, right? Destroying the motel room or whatever. Yeah, and as you were alluding to, this was on the way to things becoming bigger in, in, in this whole wave that became part of it, a big part of it became the men's work and, and for some people, the men's movement. And that was like a big wave that we were riding or being uh, overwhelmed by or trying to duck or, uh, right. for you. For yeah. So yeah. he met you because he needed to pick up some things from, from you in terms of how to handle this wave and how to handle people out in the public, uh, ha- how to handle yourself around strangers, how to protect yourself. And then you met him because, well, you needed a place to shine. I mean, and here he was, right? Well, there was that, but I already mentioned I needed to see someone be very bold about saying, here we go. Uh, first of all, we don't know what's going to happen, but we're trusting something unseen. Second of all, if that's the forest, don't mess around with where the trails are. We're going in through the branches. I needed that. I needed something that said, don't hold back. Mm-hmm. You know, take the chance because I think the shared thing was became soul is trying to come present. That's what's trying to happen. And then you mentioned Maladoma. Uh, So I invited, uh, over time, I started inviting Maladoma and other African people that I knew, but also people from other cultures. And Robert was bringing in uh, people from um, the ecstatic world, uh, you know, through the Rumi, Sufis, Coleman Box, and a whole bunch of other people. And so the, the, the cast was getting wild and diverse. Um, and so, so what was, so 
we had different roles there also because I've been studying the myths of all different cultures and all. So I had a, a, a sense of how some of the stories work and what stories might hold all of us. And, in, 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 you know, there was, yeah. But I was, I was definitely there to learn that boldness mm. and that willingness to trust the unseen. Well, it's interesting when you're describing these events and the things that you guys learned, uh, like doing the debrief after, how to kind of show up in a certain way when you're in that role and let that go when you leave and all that. It reminds me so much of how you've talked about ritual and what it takes to do ritual leadership. I mean, do you think that's part of what you were learning there too, without it being so literal and direct? Yeah. Yeah. I was studying ritual, but not imagining that I would do ritual. I didn't know that I would have that permission. I didn't know what would be the right way to do that. And what happened in a sense was Robert was so bold about getting things going in surprising, imaginative, uh, and sometimes wild ways that something was needed to shape that and even contain it. And so um, my intrigue with ritual became uh, a way to work with all that was happening. And um, so, so early, this is by the second conference we're doing, um, trying to find ways to bring ritual in so that <clears throat> it doesn't, it doesn't collapse into um, regular conversation or something so that there was, it was that other way to get the body present. And, and Robert was good about that. He felt he had that strong feeling the body had to be present. So we, you know, and he would invite in martial artists and, and, and all kinds of different people. We did all kinds of experiments with body practices and, um, and all of it was slowly leading towards ritual work. Hmm. Yeah, it, you know, I think it's great you mentioned the body. Um, it was such a big part of what he talked about. Like it was always, he always brought things down into the body, into the visceral felt experience. He never wanted things to get too intellectual. Um, and then he worked with Marion Woodman, who was all about bringing depth psychology into the somatic experience and all of that. Um, and so there's you and Robert for years, and then there's Hillman comes in, who is just like all head to me. Like when I picture him, I just picture a little thin body and a giant head full of incredible ideas. How did he fit into that to create this kind of triad that happened? Right. So this is a funny thing. Uh, you know, there there are problems with two, right? There's problems with one, like loneliness and and not another. And then there's problems with two, like the you, you now have the other and then you have otherness. And, uh, and so three in mythology is the magic number and three is the number of change. And so um, from my memory, my experience, what happened is one of the disagreements Robert and I had was over the idea of the puer, the puer eternus, the eternal youth. And so the, the, in the stories, it's the youngest brother that 
can solve the thing no one else can solve. He's like the, the non-heroic, poetic, dreaming part of the human soul. And, uh, and we both loved the younger brother in the stories, and the stories were so informative about how modern people lose that sense of connection to the youngest sister or the youngest brother. Um, but Robert had read um, von Franz, Marie-Louise von Franz's book called Puer Eternus, mm -hmm. and he took ideas from there. And so one of his ideas was that uh, the Puer was, he called him the flying boy, um, which is, it's more than that. There's more to it than that. But anyway. That yeah, was there's his, a connection there to Eros or even to Mercury, Hermes, right? Yeah, Robert was connecting more to the Hermes and the trickster and the flying. And he said that needs to be grounded. Um, and following von Franz, the idea was it needed to be grounded like in daily work. And so there would be young guys at the event, and he would, he'd be saying, oh, you're a bunch of flying boys, you know, you need to have a nine-to-five job. And I would have to interrupt and say, Robert, you've never had a nine-to-five job, and you're one of the biggest flying boys I've ever met. I don't think that's the answer. And so we had this argument about it. So somewhere in the course of well, that... Well, for him, it was purely theoretical, right? Like you said, you called him exactly. out Exactly. And, and he's following von Franz, who was, you know, coming from a little, at least to some degree from the Germanic grounded in reality approach. So somewhere along the way, I read Hillman's Puer Papers, which is this brilliant book. Oh, yeah, it's great. And where he really opens up the, um, you know, the Puer. It's really the Puer and the cynics. It's the, it's the eternal youth and the wise elder. And he opens that up. And so I'm, I'm losing some of the arguments with Robert, partly because he's older and he's more experienced and, and he, and he fights 30. I'm kidding. But, but anyway, <laughs> I'm losing some of the arguments. And so, so I say to Robert one day, so do you know James Hillman? He goes, yeah, I just was with him at a conference. I said, boy, I think it'd be interesting to have him at a retreat. And he said, oh, do you think so? I said, oh yeah, that'd be really interesting. So I said, why don't you invite him? So he invites Hillman. So then, Hillman agrees. So Hillman shows up having no idea what he's getting into, but I was waiting for him. And so I walk him to his cabin and I'm giving him, you know, like the info on what the event's about and how it goes. And I said, and he said, oh, that's more interesting than I thought. I said, oh, it's fascinating. I said, and you know what would really work? He said, what? I said, if you gave a talk on the Puer. So he agrees to do it. So the next morning he gives this brilliant talk on the Puer and the, the uh, youngest character, youngest brother in the stories and and how you don't ground them in hard reality you ground a person on the ground of their own psyche this real nuance which changes the whole story and he does it so well that i'm looking at robert and robert's going wow i think you're right so i'm going oh god all right so then that became uh, you know the trio that uh, became uh because it worked and uh hillman called it the the a jazz combo. He said, this is a jazz combo because we, we would be improvising a lot, all three of us. And we were all coming from such different places that it was in many ways, like a jazz combo. So yeah. That was a, that was a great thing. And then, and Robert really respected Jim's brilliance, his mental brilliance. And Jim turned out to be knowledgeable about poetry. So poetry became the thing. And, and Robert was really generous about that also, 
because we would start out an event. Robert would do a poem, Jim would do a poem, I would do a poem, and we'd go around again. And and that was Robert was fine with that. Um, and and suddenly we had whatever that was, the the, the trio. Yeah. yeah. Well, it, it's really fun to hear too, especially if you've listened to like a lot of Hillman pre men's conference. And then you hear him, it's like, okay, if it's a jazz combo, like you guys were already kind of uh, the Rolling Stones or something, and he's the new guitar player who gets brought in, you know, after 10 years of success or something, because he had to adapt to that whole environment with the kind of spirited back and forth and everything. And you can really hear how he's kind of adapting on the spot and and loosening up, opening up, being more confessional, like you guys had learned to be like to hear him do that at his age and his kind of um, position in life, you know, already incredibly successful, well-respected. And he's up there kind of making self-deprecating jokes about his pencil neck for, you know, and it's just really incredible how it transformed him in a way. Yeah. Well, he, he really was brilliant. He, he saw it right away. The, the second time he came to a retreat, he said to me, you know, these seven days are the equivalent of five years of therapy. Hmm. He said, this is what people need. He, he really saw the psychological value of it. And then, and then there was all kinds of great surprise. Like Hillman was a tap dancer. So once, once I figured that out and, and everybody else figured it out, we would never let him go without, we tap, 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 and he would tap dance. And so this whole dancing side of him um, and, and the whole embodied side of him and his whole whole intrigue with Eros all got activated, I think, more fully. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a real companionship thing that is a, such an important thing for men, that yeah. we we actually companioned, did things together, um, and, and, and felt that sense of support along with some tension and conflict, all sides of that. I'm sure. Yeah. Like three kind of big personalities hanging out together. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to uh, be a fly on the wall at the the bar at the end of the conference or something and hear what was going on there. Those debriefs must have been amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic. And actually, Hillman was really helpful with that. He was really, he's re- really could break things down fast. Oh, he was a de- deconstructionist. Yeah. At his core. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, Hillman. So here's one interesting thing, because you have to figure out how you're working. They're both the same age. They're both like 18 years older than I am. I'm the junior member. Um, and, and by the time we're to working together, they each have already published 20 books. And I haven't even written a book. And so there's this weird thing. How is it going to work? And Hillman had the insight on how it worked, because he said to Robert, because Hillman would say, well, Michael, what do you think we should do? And I'd lay something out. And then Robert would say, well, why does he get to do that? And so, <laughs> so Hillman would say, he's our older brother. And, and then Robert would say, he's younger than we are. He goes, no, but we're both younger brothers and he's an older brother by experience from family. He said he's our older brother, so it was really bizarre. Wow. But uh, and like that's so Hillman, 
to to yeah. see that that because yeah. you're the oldest in your family even though by age you're the youngest of the yeah. group but you carried that older brother energy yeah, yeah. which robert was able to realize because of that experience he and i had where i was helping him figure out how to protect himself that was like an older brother thing and so there was this really strange way that hillman incited and said that's why the age doesn't matter as much and that's why insert so in different situations we would each have more of a leadership um, mm -hmm. role and and that was a, an amazing experience you know that you don't have that often yeah yeah now how how did that all end? Because I've never really been clear on that. If it was an abrupt ending, if it was just, uh, or if it just kind of like petered out. Like I know the conference kept going and there was uh, new people like Manuel Riviera and like Martin Schaub kind of picked yeah. up the torch and carried things on. But was there a point where you guys got together and said, you know, did one of you quit first or was it a group agreement? That's a good question. So just to be honest about it and honor what it was, uh, I decided I wanted to do something else. And so I propose that we do a, um, a project together that would leave a, um, a symbolic something. Um, and, and that became the rag and bone chop of the heart. So it wound up being that you know, the publisher was willing to publish a book of poetry and essays. And so I made that proposal to Robert and Jim that we do this thing together and we do a, a series of events around it. And then we take a break from this because there's some things I want to do. And, 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 and so that's what happened. And then it never really came back together. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, did you stay in touch with those guys after that? Yeah, we, we, they tried working together and it didn't work. <laughs> and it's like the story of a band, you know, and yeah. then, and then I worked to, with Robert and separately with Jim and it worked better with Jim than with Robert. But yeah, we got to the point where there's a mentor student kind of thing that happens when you get to the point where what now is the relationship um, and it became the things I needed to do, um, I needed to do on my own. I had to learn more of where that path was leading. And, and so um, that was a hard thing to do, but it really became clear to me that I had to do that. And it's really like a band where everyone has to try a solo album. It really was like that. And then, and then we only come back together once in a while. It only happens a few times. Um, because the things that then were happening were actually quite different. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it does sound just like a band. I mean, my wife and I just have watched that eight hour Beatles documentary right at the end of their run as they're all kind of itching to do something on their own and seeing the mm. different personalities emerge, like especially George was kind of one of the little brothers of the band saying, I got a voice too. I got, you know, 10 albums worth of songs here that need to come out, man. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so it would have probably happened anyway, but there was a point there where I thought we could do this artfully and, and, and the art of it would be that, that book. And so, and that was an amazing experience where we would meet in different cities 
we do an event and then we spend few, a few days afterwards and we each would bring poems. And then we would spend a few days reading the poems to the others, and then we'd vote on which poems we're getting in, and then we'd argue about who was voting for what, and, and, and it was this amazing process, process that ended with that collection of poems, which you couldn't do now. You couldn't do it now because um, you have to get permission from all of the copyrights, which is the family of the poets who have passed on. It's really complicated, and no publisher would do it now that I know of. Um, and so it was really a uh, a kind of an iconic book that could happen at that time and it wasn't going to happen after that. Yeah, I, I love that book. It's one of the few that's on my desk all the time for reference. Um, yeah. Like, it's a great collection of poems, but the essays by each of you guys just add so much. Yeah. No. Yeah, that was the that was the idea to try and have the three voices and the many voices of the poems. And uh, yeah, it was a it was a great process. I mean, it was challenging. We had to we had different points of view. It was just like in a band, which song is going on the we fight over the poems, and and uh, but it was charming in its own way, and that gave us a way to hang out uh, separate from the events and separate from whatever might come next. So that that was a good process. Mm. Now is uh you know there's so much of robert out in the world especially with youtube now you can find all these great old videos uh from him reciting a poem in his writing cabin at moose lake to mm. uh you know sitting down for these longer interviews and um it's wonderful now is there anything about robert that you don't think people picking up on his work that way would have any idea about that you'd really like them to know about Robert? Hmm, that's interesting. That's a good question. Um, How much of a pain in the ass he was? <laughs> I thought that got recorded. <laughs> well, I mean, that's there, right? It's even in some of the obituaries that you read and all. He, he was bigger than life, and he was he was going where he was going. Sometimes he reminded me of those of a moose up there in northern Minnesota, you know. And and even when I see a moose, I, I wonder how do they get through the trees? How do they know what's a, what their antlers are doing out there? And Robert could be like that. He could be like that. Uh, that bumping and and you know. Right. Stay out, stay out of his way when he's on a mission. Yeah, and um, but maybe that comes along with all the groundbreaking that he was doing with poetry and with with myth and with psychology and and and, and all of that. So um, no, I think a, a, the interesting thing about Robert was a lot of it's out there. A lot of it was uncovered and laid out really quite boldly. Um, so yeah, I hadn't thought about all that, but there's an amazing record of all of that. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I don't know. The, you know, in depth psychology, we're always kind of taught that the symptom is the soul trying to make something move, make something happen, or to tell us something. And I can't help but think about the way his life ended 
you know, this last 14 years uh, of dementia and, and gradual decline and thinking about how public he was and how much demand was put on him from that public because he wasn't just like another writer. I mean, doing these conferences, being so open and vulnerable the way he was in public, people got really attached to him. And a lot of people put that father image on him or the elder image on him. And I can't imagine the weight of that. Um, and just something in me, and I don't know if this sounds insensitive or not, but just that it's kind of makes sense to me from the soul perspective that his end of days would be a, a withdrawing inward, uh, you know, maybe back into that isolation. I don't know. What do you think? No, it's really interesting. Of course, it was a shock when it started to happen. And, and, and you would just see these gaps and, and so on. And that was really shocking because of the fullness of the presence that you were used to with Robert. That, yeah, shocking. that brilliance. Yeah. Yeah. See that light um, dim. Yeah. I think that's an interesting, it's an interesting theory. And I, and I agree with you. Usually the symptom is revelatory. Um, and the symptom itself is aimed at something. So uh, I was talking to Jeff. Jack Cornfield, the Buddhist teacher, who's an old friend and who worked with Robert and I in certain events and so mm. on. And the way Jack put it was that uh, Robert's psyche went on to the bottle realm and was waiting for his body to catch up. And I was thinking, that was interesting to me, but I said, well, maybe it's the bardic realm, not the bottle realm mm. that he's been hanging out in. And so I like thinking about it that way. Um, yeah. The way I've been thinking about it is he's gone uh, to hang out with Kabir and Rumi and Machado and Neruda yeah. and all the poets that he he brought to other people's attention and that he revered so much. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know that that whole thing is a mystery, mm -hmm. but I don't know if there'll be a definitive conclusion about that. Yeah. Well, I, I just think, you know, I had another really influential teacher um, who is his life ended the same way. His brilliant mind uh, was going out in the world, sharing uh, the tradition of yoga with, with people. And, you know, I think a lot of people felt a lot of shame that he would have had that kind of mental decline and that somehow it reflected on the tradition or the lineage. And so it was like really hidden. And I've never heard anyone like really just talk openly about, um, about that, the reality of that. And I get the sense, even with Robert, there's a similar kind of thing. It's like, we don't want to talk about dementia in our culture. It's kind of a dirty secret. And there's something, I think some shame around it, which, I find surprising. Yeah, I agree with you that that's present that way and it's confusing and because it's a mysterious disappearance is occurring uh, and a loss that's not, you know, the body's remaining and something else is disappearing rather mm. than the other way around. Um, but I think also in there is uh, the sense of separating the teacher from the teaching, that, that there is a difference there that the, the teacher is time-bound mm -hmm. uh, and human, and the teaching is beyond that. And so I think that separating those two becomes a meaningful process. And I would say that's also true in mentoring, is, is separating uh, 
the persona and the person from the process of uh, mutual inspiration and all the things that can happen. Um, so on one hand, those things are mysteries. On the other hand, they're places to do some separating of the, uh, of the, the strands uh, of being as well as the strands of knowledge. Mm. Um, but because I know what you mean, it seems uh, undignified or, or something, or at least c- confusing. Uh, but in terms of seeing someone as a teacher and as uh, um, a leader, I think those things get separated. What's being learned, what's being handed on versus what happens um, on the strictly human level. Mm. Yeah, uh, you know, what really you touched on this, but, you know, when I was thinking about this, you know, when I heard that he had died, kind of after 14 years of not hearing from him, it's, you know, kind of uneventful. It's like, well, you know, I hope there's less of a burden on his family and that if he was suffering, that he's not suffering anymore and all that. But, um, you know, I, I thought about what Patricia Berry would say about symptoms is that they're always um, a defense and they always have a talos, like they have a purpose, they're leading you somewhere, but they're also a kind of defense and thinking about that kind of public burden that he must have carried. And maybe this is like the final, def- final defense. Like, look, the last years, there's an inward journey. There's something that you out there can never understand. And I think that kind of freaks people out. Like you said, that the body is still there, but somehow the person is withdrawing or dimming. Yeah. And I think it just freaks people out. So they just don't want to deal with it. Like a lot of people just don't even want to talk about death. To talk about this kind of liminal diminishment uh, is even more uncomfortable for people in our culture. I just find it strange because, you know, the people that he ran with and what he was talking about, you'd think we'd be well-equipped to talk about this and to wonder about it. And, you know, the death is a big challenge still in the modern culture. It's always a big mystery. It's the only thing equal to life. It's an enormous subject. Um, And, it is an element of mystery because it involves um, that which is not of this world appearing in this world. So that part isn't surprising to me. But what you were saying, what I would pull out of that, which I had thought of before, it's as if maybe he went on a different retreat. Mm -hmm. That's what I'm going to be thinking about. That, And I had never really thought about uh, how the life so public could create a, an opposite symptom. Um, I think that's an interesting thing to think about as well. If you think of the early books like uh, uh, Silence in Snowy Fields. Um, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, did, did he go there? Yeah, that's what, yeah. you know, that's the kind of image that came to me too, is that wintry, isolated, the cabin uh, with the snowdrifts encroaching on the cabin and all yeah. those images that he worked with, yeah. So here's something. When you're saying that, it's almost like a poem. And one of the things I learned in working with African cultures um, is there's a tradition where at the funeral of someone, uh, many people write poems to the deceased. Um, and I think what you were saying has a poem in it. And, and so then also maybe 
there's something of others of us picking up the language and the poetry mm. and 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 remembering and respecting Robert that way. Yeah. Back yeah. to the idea that we probably can't analyze it uh, effectively, um, but we might catch hints that make sense to us at the same time as we honor him. Mm. That'd be my thought. Yeah. Now I'm going to sit down with that and see if there's a poem that wants to be born out of this. Um, yeah. Thanks for that. I think, you know, especially, you know, someone like me who's been really affected by this person I've never met, you know, I think of him and I, I feel like he gave me permission actually to call him mentor because he called people yeah. like Keats, his mentors, people yeah. he never met. Right. Oh, no, that was it. Mentors so like, don't have to be alive. Yeah. But, you know, I was kind of hesitant to ever like think that or, or admit it, yeah. but here's a guy who's been like really influential who I've never met. And so yeah. a lot of that could be my own projections and, and wish fulfillment and everything, but whatever. I just, I feel that he's a no, mentor. That's, that's what happens. We project onto other people's qualities of our own soul. And in order to see them and know them, we project them onto others. And that, that's the basic move of psychology. Um, and then over time, we're supposed to then yeah. reclaim those things and integrate them into ourselves and let go of the person that we projected them upon. And so, so then if you, if you stay in that process, you can see that there's a letting go of Robert, the great man of letters, the vital, present, emotional body, the present genius of him and him being a, a, a regular man who suffers a memory loss and, and ends in a quiet way. That's part of the separating of the strands of mm -hmm. it all, I would say, I yeah. would say. No, that, that's great. And I think it relates to where I was going with it. But just um, this kind of feeling like, okay, well, what do I do? Uh, and, you know, I have this podcast. Uh, and so I thought, well, let's talk to some people who actually knew him to get a sense of what it was like to be in his physical presence and to know what he was like behind the scenes and how he affected people personally. So add something, like flesh out uh, his legacy a little bit. Um, but this taking the images that are coming in regards to his end uh, and seeing if there's a poem in that, there's something in that, that action that feels like, as soon as you were saying it, I was like, oh, like my heart was cracking. And I'm like, yeah, this feels like the right thing to attempt to do. Because I think part of what I projected onto him is his brilliance as a poet, especially these beautiful little haiku-like gems that he would come up with, you know, that were all built landscape. And they would just put me there. I'd, I'd be there next to that snowdrift or in the cornfield, right? Yeah, he could pull you there. Yeah. yeah. But this is kind of feels like a good way to, to yeah. continue on is to, okay, well, maybe try writing one of those poems. That'd be great. And yeah. you're making me think, and this might be a good way to end, uh, Robert loved Yeats. So the other thing that happened accidentally, uh, the, the first men's conference, uh, there's no plan. We're late. 
getting started. Everybody's riled up. Things are a little out of control. And, and Robert says to me, why don't you start? And so I don't, I don't even know what I've gotten into, but I did have a, an Irish drum, a baron with me. And so I grabbed the baron and started to play the baron. And I, and I recited a poem from Yeats. And, uh, and, and that was not only right for the whole group, that was right for Robert. Because I didn't know at that point, nor did he, that we both loved Yeats so much. Mm. And then I heard him say later on that um, he committed to a life of poetry because he read Yeats. Mm. And so, and I used to have Yeats in my car if I was driving anywhere. I would have Yeats on the passenger seat and I memorized the poems of Yeats. And so I was using Yeats as a, a mentor from the page. And then it turned out that James Hillman loved Yeats. And yeah. so that's why the, the Reg and Bone Shop is named the Reg and Bone Shop of the Art. That comes from the Yeats poem. And the book ends with a Yeats poem, which I, I don't know if I can remember entirely, but I want to say it as a way of ending here. Right. Because, and you'll hear where it ends. So this is Yeats at 50 years of age. And he says, I sat uh, in a London shop, a book and cup upon the table top. And then something about, and as I watched the people on the street or something, um, for a second, um, it all blazed. And I was blessed and could bless. So he had this moment of awakening where the common world of the tabletop and the people on the street became transformed and it was blessed and they realized that he could bless. Mm. And I think that was part of the attraction to Yates for Robert and for James and myself. And then I just want to say that Robert, the generosity of Robert had also a capacity to bless that he could be blessed and he could bless and what we're calling mentoring was also him blessing people. And he certainly blessed me. And that's something that I hold as a memory when I think of Robert's presence. It's that capacity to invite and, and the capacity to bless. Mm. Yeah, beautiful way to end with blessing. Yeah, yeah thanks so much, Michael. I so appreciate yeah. it. Great to be with you, Brian. Okay, write that poem. Yeah, thank you. Stay, stay safe. <laughs> well, I got, you know, if you're going to put out a book of poetry, let's call it uh, Writing with Yeats. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Writing <laughs> with Yeats is a good one. All right. Thanks a lot. All right, let's keep writing with Yeats and with Robert, who is now writing with Yeats. Yeah, I hope so. All right. <laughs> Take thank care. The Medicine Path is produced by Brian James on unceded Coast Salish territory, Vancouver Island, Canada. For more information, visit brianjames.ca. Music by Olive Artizoni, a.k.a. Greenhouse. Join the Medicine Path tribe and gain early access to episodes and the full podcast archives at patreon.com forward slash medicine path. May the road rise up to meet you. May the wind be always at your back. May the sun shine warm upon your face. May the rain fall soft upon your fields. Until the next time we meet on the Medicine Path.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.